Welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for Playing Politics, a collaboration between WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune. Chad Hartman here with you. John Rash and Lori Sturdivant from the Star Tribune editorial board. John, it was a couple weeks ago when we talked about the decisions that the editorial board would make on endorsements, and you're Showing those to us, those of us who are readers of the Star Tribune, let's get to a couple of headlines here because you're soon going to announce the St. Paul mayor endorsement, but you have announced through the paper that you have endorsed Jacob Fry for Minneapolis mayor. Talk about that decision. Laura, you chime in also. Certainly several good candidates to consider on the Minneapolis mayoral ballot this year and those who have had an opportunity to interact with Jacob Fry through his work on the city council, have probably been quite impressed with some of the work that he has done. And he came in, as all the candidates did, with a clear vision of where they want to take the city here. And so we think that for the next four years, he shows some of the political skill and long-term, um, over, long-term vision to be able to bring the city in the direction that it needs to. There's no question that there has been some significant success in the city over the last four years, but there are also some significant hurdles. And you mentioned we talked about the editorial endorsement process a few weeks ago. A little bit before that, of course, we came in to talk about the challenges with downtown crime and some of the other dynamics affecting the city. So, you know, whoever wins the race is going to have a big job ahead of him or ahead of her and we think that Jacob Fry is the best candidate to move the city forward. Laurie, when you have an incumbent who is running, in this case in Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges, in some way if the editorial board decides to go against, are you saying that she just wasn't, or if it was he either way, wasn't effective enough during that first term? There is certainly that conclusion. The way the editorial framed it up is that the next mayor, any mayor of Minneapolis, but the next mayor particularly has two big jobs has to sell the city to the uh, young talent and others we're trying to attract to the city to keep it vital, and uh, also has to run the city. And in Minneapolis, running the city is always a collaborative venture because we have a city charter that creates this uh, shared power structure with the city council having a a great deal of authority, the mayor having a great deal of authority over the police, but can't hire or fire the police chief without the city council say so. So it's, it's shared power. And the ability to both sell the city and run the city in collaboration with others, those were the things we were looking for in these candidates. We clearly think that there is someone who can do that job better than Betsy Hodges. Lori, do we have a feel where the race is at right now, how close it is, if one or two people have emerged? You know, we don't have polling. I'm sure the— No, that's a frustration. There is no polling, so we don't know who's— uh, seeming to be uh, coalescing uh, the biggest support. It's a, a, a good argument for taking full advantage of those ranked choice voting ballots that people yep. will use in Minneapolis when you don't really know whether the candidate you like is going to be one of the top finishers. You're well served as a voter in Minneapolis to mark a second choice or and a third choice. You can do all three so that if your preferred candidate winds up being near the bottom of the pack, yep. Your ballot will still count it with a second with your second choice becoming your vote in subsequent counting rounds. That will help, I think, elect the candidate with the broadest consensus support. John, what what percentage of the voters who are going to vote in Minneapolis do you think understand 
ranked choice voting enough? Or do you still think there's a, a fair amount of uncertainty about it? I think there's a fair amount of uncertainty about it, despite the great efforts of my colleague here, Laurie Sturdivant, and others to explain it. And I think it's more confusing in terms of when the results have to be tabulated. In terms of voting, it's quite clear when you go into the booth what your options are. And so, you know, if, if people just have to think within this field, do I have a preferred candidate and then do I have a second and third then it's actually not that complex in terms to, of how to go about it. And I think what's quite compelling about this race is you and Lori both mentioned there is no polling here despite the consequence of the outcome. And yet it seems that based on issues and voter appeal, there may be a fair amount of voters who might vote one or two regarding Jacob Fry and Tom Hoke. There yep. might be right. the, a cohort who might favor Nikima Levy Pounds, as well as Ray Dean. Yep. Where the mayor fits in on that, if that's she ends the biggest up, question, right? Absolutely. If you know she will have her own core of support. She's an incumbent mayor, um, and was elected with a pretty strong performance just four years ago. And you know those who don't vote for her, will she end up tertiary on their ballots or second on some? And you know how does that all work out? So I think not only has the campaign been quite interesting. The counting of the votes and the seeing where, how the ranked choice vo- voting does impact the results is really going to be something for to behold after this. Let's go to uh, St. Paul, Laurie, and let's let's talk about <clears throat> a rather unique turn it took last week. Melvin Carter, one of the top candidates in middle August, he's robbed. The uh, St. Paul police reached out to him and said, you're not providing us enough information, the serial number of the guns. There was surprise from the campaign uh, saying that by no means was Mr. Carter not providing that information. He just didn't have it. Then there was a political action committee which came out with an ad drawing some sort of correlation to gunshots and what was taking place in St. Paul since Melvin Carter's guns were taken. This is a pack tied to the Police Union Federation, Dave Titus. Melvin Carter is an African-American. People have said this would not have come up if race wasn't a part of it. It's a pretty unique story, so close to the election. What's your view on it, and what sort of implications might this have for the race itself? Well, it's a ham-handed blunder, I think political blunder, that has backfired on both the police union and the St. Paul Chamber of Commerce, which is the other funding stream for this approach uh, that has been condemned by pretty much every candidate in the race, including Melvin Carter's uh, uh, chief opponent, who is former city council member Pat Harris. Who had the endorsement. Who had the endorsement <laughs> right. of, of the people who did this yes. this hit piece. Uh, the, That's what it was. Yeah, the, Let, let's it, just be honest. It, really it was a hit was. piece. It really, it yeah. was, and it was a clumsy one. It was a, an, an awkward and ugly one that, that did have really... I think blatant racial overtones to the point that uh, it was uh, it caused a much stronger backlash than I think right. uh, anything that I've seen in city politics th- certainly this late in a campaign. Uh, this was something that the Star Tribune editorial board felt that uh, we needed a few days, extra days to look at this. So, so were you prepared to? put in the paper your endorsement, but because of this, you held off a little We've bit. held off for a few days, yes. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. John, uh, I'll just say personally for me, I have no doubt race is a part of this. And I have no doubt race is a part of how people are reacting to that. How do you think Pat Harris has handled this? Because Harris may feel he was a bystander to this. 
He came out and condemned it. But whether it's directly or indirectly, he could take a pretty big heat for what supporters of his did towards an African-American. He did indeed condemn it, and he did rightfully say that legally his campaign cannot coordinate with these outside groups, which is what candidates almost always say yeah. when something backfires and the fact that you know these independent expenditure organizations cannot legally coalesce their efforts with a candidate's campaign. But if people in St. Paul look at this issue and say whether or not he approved this or tried to advance this effort, um, the fact that these are people who are backing them and who may be close to him uh, as he begins a potential mayoral administration could become a, an issue. And, you know, I completely agree with both you and Lori, and I think so many people, you know, in terms of, you know, just how wrong this is. As you mentioned, Chad, there was a racial component to it. Lori mentioned it was ham-handed, and even on the face of it, if you think of the gun violence problem plaguing the United States, yes. the idea that two handguns <clears throat> taken from one robbery would have that much of a demonstrable effect in terms of what's happening in a, in a specific section of the city, strange credulity on all levels, and it's absolutely— He, he was robbed. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, he wasn't yeah. a part of this in any way. His, his home was violated. Not, absolutely, yeah. And so it, it's it's remarkable that with organizations of the stature that were behind this, that they didn't think twice and, and didn't take a step back, and, and it really has become a defining issue in that campaign. Let's talk about uh, what took place with the U.S. Senate on Tuesday when top representatives from Facebook, Twitter, and Google appeared at a hearing on fake ads, right? And the most pointed question, Lori, came from Al Franken. I'll just read just a part of it here. How did Facebook, which prides itself in being able to process billions of data points and transform them into personal connections for its users, somehow not make the connection that electoral ads paid for in rubles were coming from Russia. And they didn't know what to say. Yeah. And he's the one non-attorney on this group. He should have said, Your Honor, I'm done. Let's let's go to let's go to the decision because he boxed them up right there, I thought. Well, I thought so, too, co uh, co invoking common sense. Yes. But, but this is uh, an issue that has a, a lot of dimensions. And for editorial writers, it brings into conflict things we hold dear. We want very much to be advocates for truth and justice in the American way. We want to be have freedom of speech be part of that. Sure. So this, right. this is one of those interesting issues that brings into conflict things that, that many Americans hold dear, va values that, that we, we would like to be able to embrace together. Together. Freedom of speech plus the ability to run free and fair elections uh, for us each to trust each other sufficiently as we read what we think of as social media. So we, we, we think we're getting information from friends. It turns out we're getting information from from nefarious sources that are trying to undercut our country. Yep. There's no way of knowing that under the current scheme. And finding some way to, to help guide Americans through this is a, it's, a, it's going to be a big issue for us with us for quite a while. You know, and indeed, freedom of speech is something that everyone holds dear. And I think that there probably can be a way where freedom of speech may be maintained. But that's why so many, including Senator Klobuchar, Senator Franken's counterpart here from Minnesota, along with other senators, are urging that social media ads that revolve around a campaign or issue-specific <clears throat> ads undergo the same kind of scrutiny and reporting that broadcast ads or print ads, as an example, um, have to undergo at this point. They have more power. 
at this point. Oh, it's extraordinary. They, they should absolutely – that is that is one that should just be – I don't care how difficult it is for you, Facebook, Google, Twitter. You have to accept the power that has allowed you to be worth billions of dollars. Absolutely. And you have to accept the responsibility. And, and beyond that, if you look at the cost-effective aspect of this – this is the greatest operation that the KGB, now the FSB as it's called in in, uh, in Russia, you know, has probably ever run in terms of at least cost efficiency. They spent approximately $100,000, a whole lot of money to the three of us just on an individual basis. Yeah. Based on Maybe what, not a, to Lord. A federal, <laughs> what a federal <laughs> government might spend or, or, or any kind of, you know, operation, just a drop in the bucket there. And it's now estimated that 126 million Americans were exposed to these messages. It's amazing. By Facebook's own admission, these ads weren't necessarily candidate or campaign-centric, but they were designed to sow division within the United States. Correct. Which they clearly were successful at. And this is part of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government's clear objective is to sow disunity in the West so it's not unified against the nefarious action of the Putin regime. This is a direct assault on our democracy, and it's something that Congress is really going to feel compelled to have to do something about. Laura, let me just pick up, because I think John nailed it when, when he said a direct assault on our democracy. And I certainly understand the hyperpartisan nature of this, and the, and the president adds to it when he continues to say, these are just Democrats who are upset that Hillary Clinton lost. Well, we have a special prosecutor. We have numerous committees. But I look at this note. Just five of the full committee's 11 Republicans attended the Senate subcommittee while all nine Democrats showed up. To me, it shouldn't matter that a Republican won. John talked about it. 126 million people. So many questions, so many lies out there. How do we know in 2018 it won't be Russia or China going after Republicans? The idea that this is just going to be a one-sided view, that's the part of the partisan nature of this that, to me personally, disappoints me most. Well, I agree with you, Chad. Absolutely. This is another example that our partisan divisions are getting in the way of our ability to function as one country in defense of our national interests. Right. We've taken our tribalism, our, our political tribalism, too far in lots of ways in this country. Uh, it, it, we we had accuse the Russians of, of being our enemies here as they try to sow division, but how often have our own people tried to sow division? How many of these messages that were purchased by Russians and planted in on Facebook, for example, and then subsequently were seen by millions, were seen by millions because Americans believed them, believed this junk, and then circulated themselves on their own Facebook feeds. John, part of the story points out, vote for Hillary through text showing Aziz Asari, you, you can you can vote in your home country. Just unbelievable lies. And you can believe that Donald Trump won, can believe Donald Trump was the best candidate and want him to flourish. But that's still separate from denying what took place. Let me get to one other item because we're just a little short here on time. We had another horrendous attack in New York City. Eight dead, so many injured. Among the folks, this Argentinian group that was celebrating 30-year high school reunion, just a terrible situation. The president's tweeting about a program called the Diversity Visa Lottery Program. And the president says the terrorists came in our country through what is called this program, a Chuck Schumer beauty, I want merit-based. But then you look back at this minor thing I like to call facts. 
This was passed in 1990. Bipartisan support. Democrats, Republicans, the president at the time who signed it, George H. W. Bush, the first President Bush. And then, as Jeff Flake points out, the Gang of Eight, when they were putting together the immigration plan in 2013, which came up short, that was going to eliminate this program. And who was on that group? Chuck Schumer, right? And so the, uh, Chuck Schumer now, the minority leader is rising up and saying, I remember what George W. Bush was like in the days after um, the 9-11 attack. It's just the political nature and the, the, the barbs back and forth don't stop even in the hours after eight individuals were murdered like they were in the president's hometown. And I'll use another example of when the president and others said we shouldn't politicize a horrific tragedy, and that was just earlier in the month how October started, and the massacre in Las Vegas where exactly so many right. people said something has to be done about firearms in this country, and those who are the strongest advocates of the Second Amendment said now is not the time to talk about this, now is when we can't politicize this, and all those rules seem to be abandoned when we have a direct attack on innocent Americans you know, who are, or innocent people who are in New York, many of them international um, visitors as, as well. So, you know, I think that you can certainly make the comparison with George W. Bush and how we tried to rally the country in a previous attack in New York, but just look at this month and the inconsistency of the message. And on that, Laurie, I'll finish with this, bump stocks, right? That was That was a part Probably a phrase that a lot of us learned about for the first time. Right. The idea that you could change these weapons into automatic weapons and the 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 power would change at, at, at a rate that I think a lot of people, when the law was first allowed by ATF, didn't envision that. No. And so then the idea, as John pointed out, we're not going to deal with it right away. Or should we deal with it separately from the Senate and the House? Nothing has happened. No, no. For, Zero for about, has happened on bump stocks for since about then. A, for about a week, it looked like we <clears> may <throat> actually have action. There may be some softening of the NRA's opposition, just <clears throat> say no to any kind of gun change. Yeah. It looked like something could happen, and it's gone completely quiet. It uh, reminds <clears throat> me of, of the moments right after the bridge collapsed in, in Minneapolis in 20, 2007. For about three days, it looked like Republicans might be interested in increasing the gas tax to beef up our transportation spending. And then it went quiet. I think we're, we're back in this it, it, back to our, our gridlock here, but it's really unfortunate. The, the immigration issue that you mentioned, this controversy now that Trump is raising about the visa program, all it points to is that we have not done our work Correct. As, in shaping modern <clears throat> era policies around immigration so much to be done. Last time I visited with you, I remember we talked about DACA. Yep. The, the, that, that clock is still ticking on, right. what is it, 80,000 young people who, right. who who have, by all rights, 800,000, 800, yeah. who by all rights need <clears throat> to, to be in this country and contributing right. to this country. I think for their sake, I'm hopeful that we will get off the dime and talk seriously about what we, kind of a deal we can strike in Washington to improve the immigration situation. Always great stuff. Thanks, guys. Thank you. John Rash, Lordy Sturt event from the Star Tribune editorial board. Chad Hartman here from WCCO. Check us out, Plain Politics, StarTribune.com, and WCCO.com.